0: talking with uh, Dr. Lynn Patrick, who is a naturopathic physician, having graduated from Bastyr um, a number of years ago. She uh, really has published widely on uh, uh, toxicants detoxification. She's on the uh, board of directors of the American College of Advancement of Medicine. She has spoken uh, so often about these uh, various issues and really has a, a depth of knowledge that I hope in the next few minutes we can plumb a little bit. So, Lynn, I wanted to start off by asking you a question that has um, kind of been on my mind, and and that is uh, the the idea of uh, inflammation and its association with toxicants. And I think that there is a general uh, thought that um, all toxicants cause inflammation, and therefore one can look for some kind of inflammatory markers as a surrogate for toxic exposure, and, and I'm not sure if that's always the case, so I'm wondering if you could talk about uh, you know, toxic and inflammation and then any kind of surrogate markers that you might look yeah. for in yeah. toxic exposure.
1: Yeah, you know, this is a difficult question because, um, not because the answer is no, not all toxicants cause inflammation. The answer is we don't have enough information to prove that all toxicant exposures cause inflammation, but we have enough information to extrapolate and to make a general sweeping assumption that yes, the response to all toxicant exposures, and I would include metals in this as well, is an upregulation either of the aryl hydrocarbon receptor, which is um, kind of the newest area of research, or an upregulation of the Th2 uh, T-cell response and the production of cytokines, particularly IL-6. So there's an inflammatory response that can be seen, certainly in a number of ways, either with up Uh, elevated levels of 8-OHDG, which is an indicator of oxidant damage um, to the DNA, actually, or an upregulation of cytokines like IL-6. So yes, you can see that. Here's the problem. There's no way to equate one immune marker to one toxicant. That's impossible. Even 8-OHDG, which is uh, a lab test, it's a blood lab, Uh, marker that we can all do that indicates um, oxidant stress and oxidant damage and is seen in elevated levels in people who are exposed to mercury uh, or who are exposed to air pollution in particulate matter, 2.5 microns in diameter or less. Uh, Certainly, we see this with people who are exposed to PCBs, mostly through their diet through the American diet or through um, eating a lot of fish, but we can't identify a connection between a toxicant and an immune marker. But yeah, the answer to the question is yes. Through a variety of different mechanisms, all toxicants upregulate inflammation. They they induce and exacerbate inflammation. And
0: so you you started to get into a a few of the Kind of surrogate markers. I wanted to ask you about a couple of others. One is HSCRP and how you think that relates, and the other is GGT.
1: Um, GGT first. There is really good uh, correlation between elevated GGT, and again, you know, Dr. Pizzorno and I have an ongoing conversation about what's an elevated GGT you know, in the lab, do you know what your uh, reference range is for your laboratory markers for Uh, your... Yeah, I believe it's zero to 40. Okay. So within your safe reference range, you've got an increased elevation for cardiovascular disease and diabetes of about 20-fold. So there's nothing within that reference range, there's nothing about that reference range that's optimal. And if you want to eliminate that risk, then you've gotta go down to um, below 30 for sure and probably in the mid-20s. So let's uh, reimagine that reference range as a much lower, higher limit so that we can actually use it as a marker because it really is a marker for increased risk for type two diabetes and for cardiovascular disease. So within that smaller reference range, so let's say, uh, that we're going to reinvent the reference range based on the literature, and it's really zero to um, about 25 at the top, uh, and then we're going to look and see what correlates with elevated GGTS above that. And so, when you use that as the cutoff and you look above that, there's very good correlation for PCBs (polychlorinated biphenyls), uh, endocrine disruptors, and carcinogens extraordinaire uh, that are found in diet, especially in farmed fish, not just salmon, but all farmed fish. Uh, there's good correlation with um, levels of mercury and good correlation with levels of organochlorine pesticides. And that's from the NHANES database, You know, the Center for Disease Control. So of course you can't use GGT as a diagnostic test for toxicants, but with if you use the lower upper limit that I just talked about, you can certainly see correlations. And I see them mostly with metals, you know, mostly with lead, um, mercury, uh, pesticides um, and PCBs. There's less information about HSCRP, but uh, the information that exists is <clears throat> related to pesticides. Both organochlorine and organophosphate pesticides, you know, the organochlorine pesticides are the ones that Rachel Carson warned us about, and the EPA took out of circulation in the 60s, 70s, the 70s and 80s, actually, but they're still in 99% of the human population in the United States. And the organophosphate pesticides are the ones that were uh, the replacements because they were believed to be less, um, uh, they were less toxic and certainly got out of the human body more quickly. You know, the half-life for organophosphate pesticides is a matter of weeks. For organochlorine pesticides, it's a matter of decades. And so the problem is that scientists really didn't understand endocrine disruption uh, when they okayed the organophosphate pesticides. So What we know now is that organophosphate pesticides, just like organochlorine pesticides, induce oxidant stress. And what does oxidant stress do? Raises HSCRP. So they're both, as are many toxicants, sources of oxidant stress, and that's damaging to the endothelium, it's damaging to the vascular system, it's damaging to the heart, it's damaging to the organs, You know, basically, these are unfortunately some of the toxicants that are causing uh, a lot of damage uh, vascularly, you know, in our population. So, having a high HSCRP isn't just about having high risk for cardiovascular disease, it's also about a toxicant load that's causing oxidative damage, you know, in the vascular system as well as, you know, other places. And, and I think one of the things that we're working towards, like when we really get our act together and create good markers of toxicant exposure, um, we're going to be looking at things like uh, the aryl hydrocarbon receptor, which we don't have a test for upregulation of that receptor yet, um, but that leads to increased levels of interleukin-6. Um, we will also be able to understand enzyme Uh, inhibition a little bit more, there's an enzyme called PON1, peroxinase 1, which is an enzyme inside of HDL. That's why HDL is such a good lipoprotein to have in your blood, is because it contains this enzyme, PON1, while there's PON2, 3, 4, and 5 too, but peroxinase is really strong uh, antioxidant and helps us take uh, organophosphate pesticides apart, metabolize them, and excrete them. And people who are really in trouble, and there's some um, uh, genetics uh, SNPs uh, panels that will look for this now, are the people who have a PON1 SNP, you know, who are uh, homozygous for the PON1 SNP. They are much more likely to become toxic um, even with dietary exposure to pesticides because they can't break them down. And the pesticides turn into these really, very potent radical molecules called oxones. So uh, HSCRP, you know, that's the problem is if you have high levels of, even interleukin-6, HSCRP, um, let's say we could measure PON1. We can look for the SNP, but that doesn't help us because we need the activity. We can look at all these things. We're still not gonna be able to identify the toxicant. We need to do that through a really good intake uh, understanding where the exposure comes from and then being able to test for that toxicant and, and figure out a way of uh, stopping of, uh, the exposure and increasing the um, uh, elimination of the body burden. Mm-hmm. So it's, I'm not, I'm not at all suggesting that we don't test for inflammation. I think we need to test for inflammation in every way possible It's just that we haven't gotten to the point. You know, if you showed me a patient who had uh, an extremely elevated HSCRP, you know, three times over the upper limit and a GGT of 60 and an uh, elevated IL-6, you know, I wouldn't be able to tell you what they were exposed to and what you needed to do in order to address that body burden.
0: So to kind of speak to that, I'd uh, transition to – Thyroid issues and looking at uh, um, th- that autoimmune thyroiditis uh, specifically. Um, do you have? Uh, well, speak to your experience in terms of that. Those associations with toxicants, and do you ever narrow it down? And and do you have some uh, experience that you could talk about in terms of how that relates?
1: Okay, yeah, I do and I can talk about that. It's one of the things I lecture on quite a bit is um, thyroid disruption. And uh, we have probably about mm, 30 toxicants that are identified as thyroid disruptors. Uh, Those same toxicants also will affect uh, immunity related to type one diabetes, celiac disease, vitiligo, Sjogren syndrome, biliary cirrhosis, pernicious anemia, multiple multiple sclerosis, alopecia, autoimmune alopecia, and um, some rare autoimmune conditions. So it's a bigger picture in terms of toxicant exposure than just thyroid autoimmune disease. Um, Those toxicants that uh, affect, all at all levels, the thyroid pituitary axis are toxicants like mercury, which is probably the most well-demonstrated, to actually not only be stored in the thyroid follicular tissue, but to initiate um, autoimmune thyroid disease. It's been proven in animal models. But there are other toxicants as well that will act as endocrine disruptors. And I wanna give you an example of that. Um, Perchlorate is a component of rocket fuel. And perchlorate is in the water. So it's a water contaminant, and it's a water contaminant, uh, particularly for those that live in areas where it's been manufactured or near military bases. Um, So they actually did a study in Boston looking at perchlorate levels in urine of young women, meaning under the age of 40, and relationship to uh, diagnosis of autoimmune thyroid disease. And what they found was that yes, there was a relationship between uh, elevated levels of perchlorate and not only um, the existence of thyroid autoimmune disease, but levels of T3 and T4 so what perchlorate does is pretty specific it actually blocks the uptake of iodine into the thyroid tissue through that little symporter it's called the uh, sodium iodide symporter sodium gets spit out and iodine gets pulled in and that's how you can concentrate iodine in your thyroid about 50 times higher than it is in your blood well perchlorate it's got a chlorine atom and it sits right in that symporter and blocks the uptake of iodine. So you're literally, you could be completely iodine sufficient, meaning you got plenty of iodine in your diet, or you're taking supplemental iodine, or you know, you're even taking thyroid hormone, you know, which we do break down and take the iodine out of that and reuse it. Um, but it cannot get into your thyroid gland. So this is an actual disruption that's physical, meaning it actually blocks the uptake of iodine. Uh, So we have had a couple cases of patients who have had perchlorate, and you can test for perchlorate in the urine. Uh, Some of our labs will do that. They'll actually give you perchlorate levels. Who had perchlorate as a drinking water contaminant to the degree that they were unable to get enough iodine into their thyroid gland that they literally had subclinical goiter, meaning that, you know, on ultrasound there was evidence of goiter. It wasn't necessarily always palpable, uh, but you could, you could actually see it on the ultrasound. And so in that case, you know, the treatment is avoidance, right? We really want to stop, perchlorate gets broken down really quickly, you know, within a matter of weeks and eliminated from the body. But as long as that patient is, is drinking it and they're drinking water, they're going to have it on board in their uh, sodium iodide symporter blocking their uptake of iodine. So literally, these are the situations where you really have to think about the mechanisms. How does this toxicant cause the damage? because otherwise you'll just throw pills at the person and you won't be be able to give them effective treatment. And that's one of the things I learned from Dr. Crinian is, you know, just like in toxicology, avoidance is the first intervention always.
0: So, uh, just uh, one more question on that in in autoimmune thyroiditis have have you found that when you avoid that toxicant or that trigger that you're able to reverse um, the, the autoimmune thyroiditis or is the immune system as, uh, as in some autoimmune conditions, you no longer are dealing with the initial trigger, it's, a, it's the uh, immune system is yes. uh, kind of on, uh, right. on autopilot.
1: Right, it's so um, to break that question down, We'll need to talk about a couple different things. And examples. So one example would be mercury, which we know is probably the best well demonstrated in animal models and now in humans to cause an antibody reaction and, and certainly autoimmune thyroiditis. Uh, and mercury does actually get stored in the thyroid tissue. So avoidance won't help you because for mercury that's stored in the liver or the kidneys or the thyroid tissue, the half-life is in the matter of years. And so it will take years literally for that mercury to be naturally complex with glutathione and be pulled uh, into the bile or into the urine. And so in that situation, it really necessitates active chelation with an active chelating agent. Um, And that's necessary in order to um, get rid of the agent that's inciting the autoimmune reaction. Uh, There were some good studies, and I'm going to quote them because I think they were good studies, where uh, patients who had diagnosed autoimmune thyroiditis had their amalgams removed. The ones who Uh, had a hypersensitivity to mercury, which is an immune reaction, right? Which makes sense with autoimmune thyroiditis. Um, And I'll talk about that test in a second. Who had their amalgams removed, had remission. This was a research done in Sweden, had remission of their autoimmune thyroiditis. The patients who had autoimmune thyroiditis, but who didn't have a positive, it's called a MELISA test. So it's a metal ELISA test were ELISA negative, did not have a remission of their autoimmune thyroiditis. So this is a little tricky, right? It's not as simple as, oh, you just remove the metal and, you know, the problem goes away. It depends on what the cause of the autoimmune thyroiditis is, because you might have a couple of different toxicants on board. Mercury might not be the only one on board. And uh, there's actually some really good research looking at mercury, in combination with uh, TCE, which is uh, trichloroethylene, it's a solvent. When you put both of those together, it's a logarithmic change in terms of the toxicity. And in fact, um, there's some very good evidence from um, uh, an actual housing development in New Mexico where the incidence of lupus was about 28 times the national average that it was the combination of both mercury and tce that had initiated that really significant uh initiation you know of an autoimmune disease of lupus Um, and autoimmune hepatitis same thing so that's a situation you know where with metals it's a little bit tricky because you actually have an immune reaction to the metal that initiates the problem rather than just the metal being toxic. And in mercury, it looks like there has to be some kind of metal initiated immunological reaction to initiate that autoimmune thyroiditis. And in that situation, because I'm going to be really specific to answer your question, when the metal can be removed, and it was as easy as getting the amalgams out of the mouths of of, uh, this particular group, their autoimmune thyroiditis did go into remission, complete remission. I wouldn't say that for everything else, and I wouldn't say it for exposure to trichloroethylene, which is kind of the, of all the toxicants, is the best well demonstrated to cause autoimmune disease. Uh, and we think, oh you know tce you 've got to work in a, a solvent plant or you 've got to work in a dry cleaners to get exposed to that, but no it 's one of the top uh, drinking water contaminants and soil contaminants um, in the United States very very common contaminant, but with TCE, which is eliminated from the body very quickly, it does its damage as it 's getting broken down in the liver. TCE is bound to certain Proteins, certain uh, human liver proteins, and it can initiate autoimmune hepatitis or other forms of autoimmune disease. And in that case, the damage is already done. The TCE is metabolized and eliminated through the urine, and you've got an adduct, you know, on your hands that your body's making an, an antibody to. That it's it's already too late. And so you have to use other mechanisms to address that autoimmune disease.
0: Let me ask you one other question um, about uh, saunas. And I know that you use saunas in clinical practice. And what are are some of the uh, best ways? What kind of saunas do you use? What are some of the reasons that you would use saunas medically?
1: Yes. So the most important thing to know about whether a sauna is um, a clean sauna or not is how it's built. There are certain manufacturers that will not use glues, that will not use solvents, um, that will not use uh, wood that contains terpenes uh, in the manufacture of their sauna. And that's because they've taken their their cue from Dr. William Ray, who practiced environmental medicine. We just uh, lost him here about a year ago, um, based on his research. So there are companies that actually use um, kind of a tongue and groove design uh, where they actually don't glue the sauna together. It's just put together kind of with pegs and uh, tongue and groove. And so it's completely free of... Uh, any material that would off-gas when it's heated up, right? Because that's the last thing you want. So that's one thing. Um, Infrared saunas have to be protected. So in other words, conduit, metal conduit, has to be placed around all the wires or there will be significant EMF exposure. So there are some manufacturers of infrared saunas that actually know about protecting the wiring with, with metal conduit and do that and they talk about it on their websites. Um, do you want me to mention? Sure. sure. Yeah, so sure. Heaven, Heavenly Heat and Sauna Ray, R-A-Y, are the two companies that build clean saunas, meaning they don't use solvents or glues in the manufacture of their sauna, and have mitigated for EMF exposure. So those are the important things about, about that. Um, Another thing, especially in a medical sauna, is you have to have an exhaust because you will have patients in that sauna who are off-gassing, volatile compounds that um, you don't want them to either breathe or you don't want other people in the sauna to breathe. So you have to have an exhaust fan. So good saunas will have just a standard little, you know, six inch or eight inch exhaust fan that will pull the air out of the sauna and vent it to the outside of the building. So when you want to use a sauna is in a patient who has a body burden that you know the sauna will help with. So those are very specific situations, solvents in general, especially toluene, so patients who've been solvent exposed, phthalates, patients who've been exposed to phthalates, whether that's through personal care products or the off-gassing from um, vinyl floor tiling or however you've identified that they have a body burden of phthalates, they will come out in sauna. BPA does come out in sweat. Um, For metals, uh, cadmium pours out literally in sweat. Um, Dr. Geno has published that research where he showed that sweat levels uh, in the sauna are multiple times higher than either the urine or the serum levels of cadmium. Um, Mercury also comes out in the sweat and you'll get increased urine levels of mercury after sauna. I've seen that multiple times. Organochlorine pesticides. Uh, So patients who have been exposed to organochlorine pesticides, uh, those pesticides will come out in the urine uh, and they'll come out in the sweat during sauna as well, uh, PCBs, patients, I've had many, many patients who are PCB toxic from either eating a diet high in butter, beef, and farmed fish. Uh, so those are the, the main uh, chemicals that Dr. Genois found out come out of the body with sauna. And this was, uh, he compared uh, infrared sauna to just a standard radiant heat sauna so we had patients in both, measured their sweat, and he was able to establish that it doesn't matter. That it, you know, it was, they were pretty equivalent. Radiant heat sauna and an infrared sauna, pretty equivalent in terms of their ability to get out the toxicants. Um, he also had uh, folks on an exercise bike, did not get the same results from the exercise bike, was not able to prove that those toxicants came out effectively just from exercise alone. So it's a a heat-stimulated opening of the sweat oil glands that actually does that.
0: Uh, one, I, I just want to ask you one additional question just sure. uh, about uh, uh, fiber and modified citrus pectin. Do you uh, have, a, uh, when you're trying to do some sort of uh, pulling out of toxins from a fiber standpoint, do you think about uh, modified citrus pectin or do you just think about fiber?
1: there's very good evidence that uh, rice bran will pull fat stored toxicants out of the body, meaning in, into the, from the bile into the uh, intestinal tract, and will prevent enterohepatic reabsorption. So rice bran is a good form of uh, bran to use. It does have some arsenic in it, but it's, um, it's not toxic and we're not finding in the amounts that are being used that there's any increase in uh, urine arsenic from the rice bran. Uh, Bran in general is, uh, and fiber, soluble fiber in general is a really good intervention for patients that you're trying to really pull the fat-soluble toxicants out of them. Um, Cholestyramine does have the best track record of all the interventions for fat-soluble toxicants. Um, especially PCBs. If you have patients who uh, have a demonstrable PCB burden and they're diabetic uh, and obese, there have been some very good published studies looking at interventions, single patient published studies, so serial cases of patients who have uh, their diabetes has gone into remission and they've lost significant amounts of weight using cholestyramine as a way to Uh, Basically, increase fecal PCB levels.
0: That's a great, uh, that's again some great clinical insight, Lynn.